This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 3rd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, we'll talk about what's happening in the news with Michelle McQuig, including Jason Kenney's last couple days on the job as the premier of Alberta. Kelly Braun Johnson will chat about National Disability Employment Month. I'm going to ask her the question. If you were in charge of disability employment, what's the one thing you would do? What's your top newest devices, including the Quebecers are heading to the polls today to vote in the province's general election. Morgan Lowry files this primer. Quebecers have more options than ever this election, with five different parties drawing significant support for the first time. But polls have suggested Coalition Avenir Quebec leader François Legault is heading towards a second-majority government with support more than double that of his closest opponent. He's facing off against the Quebec Liberals, Quebec Solidaire, the Parti Québécois and the Quebec Conservatives, who are all polling in the mid-teens. The leaders have spent the past five weeks debating issues such as immigration, the environment and the rising cost of living. But it's voters who will have the final say, right up until polls close at 8 p.m. Morgan Lowry the Canadian press, Montreal. Let's look abroad where search and rescue efforts are still underway in Florida after Hurricane Ian hit last week. At least 68 people have been confirmed dead in Florida, North Carolina and Cuba. Rena Roy has the latest. Officials in Lee County under fire for issuing an evacuation order Tuesday instead of Monday, like some other nearby counties. At least 42 people were killed there, the highest death toll in the state. Authorities defending their decision. President Biden will be visiting on Wednesday to tour the destruction himself. His administration has promised to help however possible when it comes to rebuilding, recovery and rescues. Rena Roy, ABC News, Naples, Florida. And let's continue to look abroad. We shared the story a number of times last week about some leaks on the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines. Will authorities in Denmark say the Nord Stream 1 natural gas pipelines have stopped leaking? And they've also said that the ruptured Nord Stream 2 pipelines have stopped leaking. Lama Hassan reports some European countries are finding alternative ways to get gas without utilizing resources from Russia. European countries are slowly finding alternative ways to get gas to avoid relying on Russia. The latest country is Poland. Gas has now started flowing to Poland through a new pipeline from Norway via Denmark in the Baltic Sea. Danish authorities say the damage to the gas pipelines were caused by undersea blasts that involved several hundred pounds of explosives. And while we're in Europe, the British government has dropped plans to cut income tax for the top earners. The original policy plan sent markets and the British pound tumbling. Charles de Ledesma has more. 
In a dramatic about-face, Treasury Chief Kwanasi Kwateng says he will abandon plans to scrap the top 45% rate of income tax paid on earnings above $167,000 a year. In a statement, he explains, we get it and we've listened. It's clear that the abolition of the 45p tax rate has been a distraction from our overriding mission to tackle the challenges facing the country. The U-turn came after a growing number of lawmakers from the governing Conservative Party turned on government tax plans announced 10 days ago. Charles de Ledesma, London. Yeah, surprise, surprise, in the midst of an economic crisis saying that we're going to cut income tax for the top earners. Yeah, imagine that didn't go over super well in the public. It's imagine that. Funny, funny. Okay, one more story for you this morning. Now, bear with me on this one because we're going into the science file. So I'll try to read this slowly, and I tried to rewrite this in plain English, but it might still be a little bit dense. So again, just bear with me on this one, and maybe I'll uh, reread it if we need to because it's Nobel Prize season. And the 2022 Nobel Prize for Medicine has been awarded to Swedish scientist Svante Pebo for his discoveries on human evolution. Pebo pioneered methods to extract and sequence ancient DNA from Neanderthal bones, leading to the discovery that Homo sapiens interbred with Neanderthals. So what are we? We're Homo sapiens. And apparently we were mating with Neanderthals. So chair of the commit of the Nobel Committee for Medicine, Professor Anna Vidal, says the discovery allows scientists to compare these ancient genomes with the genomes of modern humans. By bringing together a, a large international group of collaborators for advanced computational analysis, Pebu finally achieved the impossible, sequencing and assembly of the Neanderthal genome. The Medicine Prize kicked off the week of Nobel Prize announcements. Tomorrow, the Physics Pride Prize will be awarded, and uh, I'll try to explain that one to you as well. Putting on my science cap here. It's been a long time since uh, my grade 10 physical science class and my grade 10 AP bio class, but I'll do my best. Your boy didn't do chem or physics. He decided liberal arts was uh, a better pathway somewhere in grade 10 as uh, trigonometry and math also came right for me. And that was it. That was it. That was all. The possibility of Dave Brown, the practicing scientist, uh, went out the window. And instead, we just did theater and, you know, enjoyed life. Still enjoying life. Most days. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Last week, we asked you, how will you be marking the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation? 38% of you said attending a ceremony. 0% of you said talking with survivors. 24% of you said reading reports. And 38% of you said other. Today's Daily Poll, much lighter fare at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. When it comes to technology, are you loyal to a particular brand? In other words, will you pay more to have all your devices in the same ecosystem, yes, no, or it depends on the price. At this point, I'll tell you, and you know this, I'm very brand loyal to my phone. I've been a Samsung Galaxy user since the very beginning of my smartphone life, and it will take a lot to knock me off that perch. That said, PCs, laptops, apples, tablets, iPads, I am completely agnostic. I got an iPad as a gift a couple of years ago. I like it. It's not enough to motivate me to get under the iPhone category or get a new Mac computer. I'm totally content when that 
iPad bites the dust that I will simply go buy some other tablet, some cheaper tablet. I'd be fine with that. But I'll tell you, in a singularity, as a singularity for my phone, yes. For everything else, give your boy a sale. Give me a deal. Let me hunt it down, and I'm going to hop all over that thing. So that's me. Let's bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, are you brand loyal? And would you pay more to stay in a particular ecosystem to avoid technological friction? You know, I would say I used to be very brand loyal. Like you, Dave, I was a Samsung guy for many years. I mean, my last three phones were all Samsung Galaxy phones. I loved them a lot. That said, like, I would also have, you know, like PC laptops. I, I had Samsung tablets. I found the Samsung tablets, they maybe lasted a year to two years. Like, uh, the build quality was really, mm. really poor on them. Whereas the Samsung phones were phenomenal. I, I never had any issues with them. I'm currently in the process, actually, of upgrading my phone. I'm also looking at getting a potentially a smartwatch. And so I've started thinking about this and looking at different options. Okay, what's available? Does it make sense to go into one ecosystem or another? And when it comes to the phone, I'm now looking at the iPhone, which is something I never thought I would do. But it, it comes down to even small little things like the fact there's no headphone jack anymore on the Sam's new Samsung Galaxies. Mm. Whereas, you know, with the iPhone, they don't have it as well. But they have the Thunderbolt charger and they have headphones that you can plug in via Thunderbolt. So it's little things like that where it's like, okay, well, that becomes more of an option, more appealing. Because I don't want to have to have Bluetooth headphones for everything. I don't want to have to charge another thing. <laughs> uh, same thing with, with, the, with the smartwatches, you know? It's like, originally it's like, well, Apple watches are so expensive. Do I really want everything? Well, no, I don't need all the, the bells and whistles. But I can look at a third-party brand that works with both Samsung and Apple, mm -hmm. iOS and Android. And I think it really comes down to specific pieces. But when it comes to Apple products, I mean, I have an iPad, I have a MacBook that's like almost 10 years old. They still work great. They mm. hold up and the build quality is far better than Samsung. But that build quality does come at a price. Mm -hmm. Alex, as I sort of unpack that answer, read with the, between the lines, it sounds to me like maybe you'd be interested in paying a little bit more to stay in the same ecosystem. Maybe not drastically more, but you would at least be willing to consider it, right? To say, okay, if my iPad and my iPhone and my AirPods and my Apple Watch are all talking to each other, communicating with each other, and making my experience super seamless, maybe that's something you would flirt with. But again, it depends on the price. Yeah, and I think, too, you have to look at each individual uh, device and and weigh the pros and cons on it. I, I think, you know, having a core set, let's say, you know, phone, tablet, and, and computer, maybe having those three in the same ecosystem makes sense. Whereas, as I mentioned, with smartwatches and these other peripherals, they will connect and they will work on both platforms. So maybe you don't need the full ecosystem, but mm -hmm. having some key pieces will help and makes it easier transferring information footage, you know, content between those devices a lot easier and a lot more streamlined. Yeah, that's well put, Alex. Thank you for sharing that one. Eliza, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were talking about brand loyalty on certain things like cosmetics, for example, that you and I both have like a mouthwash that we like. That's our mouthwash. That's the one you got to get. But what about technology? Have you, Are you someone who's willing to bounce around a little bit to stay in the same ecosystem or are you willing to sort of hodgepodge it together? Well, for the past 
I would say about 10 years, I have been an Apple girl. I have an Apple laptop. I have an Apple phone. I have Apple headphones. You like Apple juice. I love Apple juice. You got that right. <laughs> um, so I do. Uh, Apple is expensive. So I guess I, I do pay more to be staying within the same family. However, my head is being turned a little bit. Uh, my loyalty is being a little bit questioned. Um, in the past few months on the show, we've been talking a lot about those Sa Samsung like flip and fold phones. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. are just so cool. Those are so cool. So, you know, uh, when I inevitably do get a new phone, am I going to go to Samsung? I don't know. But it does look cool, and my phone is getting kind of old. So you can be lured away by an, by an interesting feature, by some kind of innovation. Just a little bit. And, like, I, I need to replace, as, as we know, as I t told you, um, my laptop is dying. Yes. And I need to <laughs> replace that. Um, planning on doing that for a, as a nice Christmas present to myself. Nice. But, and maybe, maybe I, I look a little outside the Apple family. Will I actually end up buying something outside of Apple? Probably not, but I'm going to explore it. it. It's especially in the zone of laptops where there is perhaps more value, value, value to be found outside of the Apple family, outside of the Apple tree. Because typically if you wanted to go get what would be the equivalent to your 10-year-old laptop in terms of the, the modern contemporary version, you're looking at well over $1,000 to oh, do that, yeah. right? Like maybe even more <laughs> because you work, in, you work in video editing, not simply when you're working for us, but in like your free time as well. So definitely you'd want a more powerful machine and that's where, yeah, there, there can be almost half the price to be going outside of the Apple family. But then what about your archives, right? All the work you might have done inside the Apple editing ecosystem for all those years. Can you port that over? Does that mess up exactly. your, like, your archiving as well? So sometimes they get you purely on archiving, right? Things you don't want to lose. I know, for example, in my Samsung cloud, I've got a whole bunch of pictures up there, right? And, and I do not want to deal with the hassle of trying to pull them out of there if I ever jump out of this ecosystem. Yeah, I cannot imagine the hassle I would face of trying to convert every single Mac file to a Windows file. I have to do that here already a little bit, and it is uh, not fun. So, uh, Eliza, thank you for this. We thank appreciate you. it. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Let us know about your brand loyalty when it comes to technology. Hey, and if you want to jump into the comments or reply to the tweet or, reply, or jump into the comment section on the Facebook post, we definitely encourage you to share the stories that you have of the benefits you've had of staying in the ecosystem or maybe what you do when you build a bit of a hodgepodge and try to eliminate that friction, share some expertise. We're a community here. We're always interested in hearing what you have to say about these issues. And if social media is not your bag, we understand. But talking to us is feedback at ami.ca is the email address. Feedback at ami.ca or give us a phone call 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly sunny, becoming a mix of sunny clouds later, and the high is 10. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's sunny with a high of 14, and a frost advisory is in effect. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny as well, a high of 15, and a frost advisory is also in effect there. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's same thing. It's sunshine, a high of 15, and that frost advisory is in effect. In Toronto, Ontario, 
It's beautiful, it's sunshine, and 17 is the high. Up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 21. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, clouds rolling in later with the chance of showers and the high is 20. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds and the high is 22. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunshine with 22 being the high. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with the chance of showers this morning, but this will clear up in the afternoon and there'll be a high of 23. In Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny and the high is 10. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny and hazy this afternoon and the high is 20. And finally in Victoria, BC, it's sunny and 19 is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from environment Canada. Uh, it's always a little hazy in Vancouver in the afternoon. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, we'll check in with Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to discuss the Jason Kenney era in Alberta. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's catch up with Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to find out what's going on with some notable headlines across the country. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, let's start in the legal world where former Senator Don Meredith is facing criminal charges. What are the charges filed against Don Meredith? Wow, yeah. Well, this is a, a blast from the past for people. We'll go over that. But over the weekend on Saturday morning, quite early, actually, Ottawa police put out a statement saying that Don Meredith is now facing four criminal charges, three counts of sexual assault, and one count of criminal harassment. No details on any of the allegations that led to those charges, other than the fact that they allegedly related to incidents that took place or were alleged to have taken place between 2013 and 2014. And the the police release made this kind of unusual point of saying that they were reported by an adult woman. This is relevant because of Don Meredith's past, which I suspect you'd like to uh, explore a little bit there, Dave. Yeah, Michelle, as a reminder here, this isn't the first time Don Meredith has faced some controversy in regards to uh, relationships. So what's some of the background? Yeah, the, so the, the adult woman issue is because of exactly how Don Meredith became such a high-profile name for a while. You, you might remember seeing his name a lot back in 2017. Um, allegations began to surface during his time as a senator uh, about sexual misconduct, some of which involved allegedly a teenager. And that this is what, what ultimately led to his disgrace from the Senate. Uh, a, a, an investigation was conducted, the Senate ethics officer released a report and had come to the conclusion that he did indeed use his office to help facilitate a relationship with a teen who was underage at the time. And uh, Don Meredith did acknowledge having a sexual relationship with a young person, although he did say that nothing uh, particularly egregious took place until after she was of age. But all the same, the Senate ethics officer had recommended that he be expelled from the Senate over this relationship. And before that could happen, Don Meredith actually resigned. Uh, odds are that the senators were going to act on that advice and vote to expel him. But he took that step and, and announced his resignation in 2017. 
That wasn't it, though. There was more about Don Meredith that came out. There was a separate ethics committee investigation that was released in 2019, and that related more to goings-on in his office Mm. and his staffers. And uh, there were a number of allegations there around bullying and whatnot, but yet again, there were some allegations of sexual misconduct in that context that he might have touched or propositioned some of those former staff members. Um, Up until Saturday, though, there had never been any criminal charges laid. These were all ethics committee findings and Senate reports and investigations handled largely internally. Uh, So this is the first time that we're seeing any kind of action on the police front with with regard to John Meredith. So let's come back to these current criminal charges. I know it's Mm -hmm. obviously a bit difficult to understand what the timeline might be and how it proceeds from here. But is there any sense of what this timeline may look like, either with investigation, the charges now coming forward or court dates? Very, very little. No, uh, we know he was released on promise to appear in court, but we did not have a court date. I was unsuccessful in finding a court date on the dockets yesterday. I was looking around to see if we could find some of those. Um, but no, we don't have any word on that front. The investigation we do know is still open on the police side. There was a line in the release saying that there there may be additional victims and anyone with information is encouraged to come forward, which is often language used when an investigation is still open and active. Mm. Uh, but in terms of timelines or, or specific allegations, it's going to be a while. These things never move that quickly anyway, especially even when you don't have a high-profile person in the mix. Uh, we're going to be into bail hearings and some court procedures and whatnot. But if he does, in fact, wind up taking this to trial, we're not going to see that for a year and a half or so at least, I would think. Well, Michelle, a timeline that we are clear on is that Jason Kenney's time as Alberta Premier is coming to a close. The era has not been a long one, but it's been notable. So It as we, certainly has. As we move towards Thursday, what are some of the reflections people are having as the Premier enters his last few days in office? Well, I, I, I can't. I would be remiss if I talked about Jason Kenney without plugging a, a story from my colleague, Dean Bennett, out in Calgary, who wrote a very colourful fun read and a great account of the Kenny era, which has been tumultuous to say the least. He, he, some of you might remember him from his time in federal politics, uh, which was a lot less uh, dramatic perhaps than his tenure at the head of the United Conservative Party when he really, really positioned himself as a great uniter. He was seen widely as the person who could uh, return Alberta to some prosperity, uh, who could unite the conservative movement, which had had some splintering oh, in yeah. the years prior to deep, the UCP. Deep being fractures. Yeah, yeah, deep fractures hugely. between the Wild Rose and the Conservative Party in the province. And you got it, and we're seeing some of those fractures reemerge now in light of all of this. But anyway, um, he was really seen as the guy who could put an end to that. And in fact, when he when he did first win an election and defeated the NDP, uh, it was a very convincing win. He he was swept in on a wave of real popularity and optimism. Uh, the oil and gas sector was delighted because he was a very, very staunch ally. And that ultimately became a bit of a liability because there was a perception that there was a singular focus on this industry at the expense of others. Uh, his his rhetoric and his politics started to get very divisive. There was a real sort of us versus them mentality and, and, and spirit behind a lot of his remarks. And oil and gas was, was inextricably linked with a lot of this. Uh, he, he would go so far at points as to say that if you didn't support the industry, you were, you were anti-Alberta. Um, it, it got pretty heated. And this was all before COVID-19 hit. And that really, really took things to another level because his government uh, positioned things as a choice between lives and livelihoods. That's sort of the simple way to boil down the, the, the sort of existential struggle that was taking place within that government. 
several times. Uh, the, the early wave, things went pretty smoothly in Alberta in terms of COVID, but in subsequent waves, uh, there were always late actions to to implement lockdown measures. That you might recall, there's a very vocal base in Alberta who was opposed to any kind of measures at all, versus some who felt that the government always waited far too long. And at one point, uh, those appears those concerns appeared to be proven right when the hospital system neared collapse. The army had to be called in. You might remember it was last fall or so. Mm-hmm, that things were mm-hmm. very, very dire in Alberta in terms of COVID and hospital capacity. Um, this had happened after Jason Kenney had declared that the province was open for good and rolled back restrictions far, far earlier than other countries. That was seen as one of the uh, many gaffes that was, were, were committed. It, it would honestly take too long to list all of the high-profile incidents that uh, wound up garnering headlines and, and garnering a lot of criticism from within the party. By early this year, though, it was pretty well open warfare. And you might remember that when his leadership was reviewed, he did gain enough support from within the party technically to hang on to his job, just a little bit over 50%. But that was hardly a ringing endorsement, and mm-hmm. he decided to step down. There's no doubt that he was a uniter in the party at a time when they needed to be united if they wanted to win a provincial election, because that was a huge, the vote splitting, which we're going to see in Quebec later today, was a huge thing that put <laughs> the NDP in power in the first place. The fact is, COVID-19 it was just a political grenade, especially for a lot of conservative leaders. Uh, Aaron O'Toole definitely took the brunt of that. Uh, the, the amount of support that Maxime Bernier got at a, during a federal election mm-hmm. showed that that's a grenade inside the conservative movement, that there are people who, whether rightly or wrongly, believe that freedom is the ultimate tenet. Because we can say we want to, but Jason Kenney's oil and gas policy, the fact is everybody inside the UCP is very happy to have a pro oil and gas guy in that in that spot that that's just that's that's the rank and file of the party that's that's, that's fine. fair that criticism comes from outside of the party yes that's freedom right is at the root of the struggle right now inside that movement it is it just is whether rightly or wrongly that's the struggle and he was seen as too moderate on that front in the sense that he was not all for complete and total freedom you're right. And and of course, it's interesting you mentioned Quebec because we are going to see that in Quebec today in, in terms of the, the Quebec conservative leader is has gained remarkable amounts of ground, at least in polling so far. We'll see if that translates to a seat. Uh, but by protesting against a lot of what Francois Legault instituted by way of COVID-19 measures, which were considerably harsher than anything Jason Kenney ever mm-hmm. implemented. There was no curfew in Alberta, for instance, the way there was in Quebec for five or six months there. Um, if you move this whole conversation over to Alberta, where uh, further right politics and the uh, freedom first movement, for lack of a better term, to stick with your uh, phrasing there, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Move that whole conversation to Alberta, where that faction is much, much more vocal, more robust and, and larger. Just by, by from you know by virtue of demographics, and it gets really really heated. So you're absolutely right. That was kind of the the, the nail in the coffin for Jason Kenney as leader of the UCP. Um, but it would be, it would be unfair though I think to say that that was the only thing. Oh, um, certainly, yeah, certainly. Yeah, there there were lots of other 
issues. I mean, if we're talking about the oil and gas, and you're absolutely right to say that everyone within the party would probably be a pro-supporter of that. Uh, not everyone necessarily, though, would set up a specific war room to tackle this and pick fights <laughs> with a cartoon it's, creature, right? That's, like, that's it, definitely fair. Yeah, that's definitely fair. There's all fair. kinds of anecdotes that it was a very, very colorful term in office. And again, Dean Bennett's story lays a lot, lays out a lot of this stuff in very engaging detail. <laughs> so I would yeah. encourage you to take a look. Read it, but, last, read it last night. It was a great piece of writing, a really impeccable piece of writing. Yeah, no, Dean's uh, – this is where Dean lives for these kinds of <laughs> – lively colorful sum-ups like this but uh it all comes to an end on thursday we shall see yeah leadership announcements on thursday we'll find out who the new leader of the ucp is and who the new premier of alberta is but uh i don't think we're going to tackle that on the news panel i think we're going to do a very special deep dive on employment this week as part of national disability employment month teaser alert teaser alert that's that's the little front cell a four a four-day front cell that's how that's how pro we are right now with dave brown that's right (laughs) hey michelle (laughs) have a great couple days we'll talk to you on friday you too dave take care that's michelle mcquig the weekend news editor at the canadian press coming up next kelly braun johnson will talk about national disability employment month but first here is canadian press reporter rob westgate with your morning business minutes Bay Street ended last week on a flat note following another rocky quarter while the markets south of the border slid into the red. Toronto's S&P TSX had just a little more than two points at close, finishing at 18,444. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 500 points down to 28,726. That's a 1.7% decline. The Nasdaq, it fell 162 points down to 10,576. Overseas this morning, Japan's Nikkei is trading up 279 points at 26,216. The British government has dropped plans to cut income tax for top earners, lifting the pound on the news, while the International while the International Energy Agency is sounding the alarm, saying that people will have to save at least 13% over the winter if Russia cuts off the last trickle of gas at 72.64 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. October marks National Disability Employment Awareness Month. There are plenty of angles to explore, and we'll do a deep dive on the news panel later this week with Michelle and Joita. But let's start the conversation with the founder of Completely Inclusive, Kelly Braun Johnson. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Great to chat with you once again. Hi, good morning, Dave. So National Disability Employment Awareness Month is underway. You work in the field daily. How would you evaluate the overall landscape when it comes to employing people with disabilities? So the way I've seen it, even over just the last couple of years, there's been large, mostly large tech companies, but a lot of large corporations that have kind of attracted attention uh, by having these very specific hiring programs that you see a lot of um, a lot of focus on autism. So there's a lot of autism specific hiring initiatives, uh, but the disability community is huge, right? And there's so much variation and diversity within it that I'd like to see kind of more broader initiatives that include everyone. Um, but one group I'd love to acknowledge that I think has always been there, always kind of plodding away doing this work have been families, family members, uh, of people with disabilities will often start their own little local businesses 
and help the local economy and help their own family members. And I think those are an overlooked population of people that have been really doing some hard work on the ground, you know? Let's let's go a little bit deeper into that, because as you point out, the disability experience is quite vast. There's a broad range of people and experiences. So these months can be a little bit difficult to understand where the focus might be. So Kelly, I'm putting you in charge. Would there be a particular area of focus that you'd want organizations and people to zoom in on this month? So I think rather than kind of focusing, kind of more broadening, because I think because, like I said, we've seen these neurodiversity hiring programs or we see restaurants that are hired or, or staffed only by deaf people or only by blind people or only by intellectually disabled. And those have those, their place. That's I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those programs, but what I want to see is, is, you know, the understanding that we can have multiply disabled people working um, and businesses tend to kind of put issues into little silos or they make a cause uh, out of people. And what I what I don't want to see and what we have seen in the past is often, uh, you know, I'll approach a business and they say, well, no, we're working on hiring uh, more women this year. We'll, we'll look at hiring BIPOC next year. And it kind of puts people into these little silos. And, and that's not how we work, right? You can have disabled women, you can have disabled BIPOC. And I think it's the understanding that when we're working towards equity in one group, it actually brings equity to other groups. And so, you know, humans are complex. I want to see that kind of brought into every aspect of inclusion and, and having that part of being recognized when it comes to employment. Mm. Of course, unfortunately, you're not in charge of Disability Employment Awareness Month, but you are in charge of your own company. And we sometimes neglect to talk about the work that you do at Completely Inclusive. So what are you doing these days in terms of your goals at Completely Inclusive? So my goal, my mission has always been to make the path easier for others. Um, I, I bring my own experiences that I've had in the workplace. Um, and I just really want to see a society. In the end, if I can take over the world, I will and make, and make the place completely inclusive. Um, but so what I do basically that keeps the light on, you know, in my house, so to speak, is I do a lot of advisory work uh, with companies and nonprofits. Um, and I do a lot of outreach and education. So a lot of it is speaking at conferences. Um, I deliver workshops in businesses. And I'm basically just trying to help businesses understand how they can be psychologically safe and completely inclusive and that they can change their culture. Um, I do what's called, what we call now, expanded DEI. So instead of diversity, equity, inclusion, it's IDEA. So inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Mm. And that speaks to evolutions and the expanding of your own skill set and considering new approaches to the work that you do. So let's talk about restorative justice. And before you tell me how that influences your work, I've got a very big assignment for you. Can uh -oh. you try to define restorative justice for me? I'll, I'll sum it up as quick as I can, but uh, yes, you know, I just finished my professional certificate in restorative justice from Vermont Law and Graduate School, and um, I want to just pat myself on the back for that. I'm very excited because uh, I just finished it last month, and um, going back to school in your 40s is is really intense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's all. That's what I want to say. Um, but uh, restorative justice essentially is community-focused uh, conflict resolution. And it has its origins in indigenous communities. Um, and it's from the idea that we're all connected. And it's kind of the idea that if one person in the community is hurting, then we're all hurting. 
And if one member has hurt a member of the community, then it's our, responsible for, uh, our responsibility for all of us to come together to find solutions. And so we're supporting both, we can say victim and offender, that this is not quite the same language in the workplace, but we're all taking responsibility for what we have done and the part we've played and how we can move forward now as a group uh, to prevent these things from happening again. So it has a very strong preventative aspect to it. So let's take that idea, let's take that theory and apply it. How does that end up influencing the work that you do? So for me, I've, I've seen it as uh, extremely powerful. It has now infused itself into all areas of my life. I, I use it in my parenting. I use it in, in my whole approach to, to um, approaching conflict. And so I'm trying to bring this into workplaces basically to I, because I see it's so powerful. Um, in North America, our, our culture, right, we're very used to avoiding conflict. Um, you see candidates uh, being ghosted by, by employers. Um, we're gossiping about everyone else except for the person that we actually have the issue with. There's a lot of very much like hush, hush, hide it away. And, and those kind of unresolved issues, especially in the workplace, can lead to become very toxic, eventually becomes a very toxic environment, right? Um, and restorative justice completely turns all of that on its head. We, we go forward, we, we address the issue, and then we work together. It's, that's that, again, that concept, working together, we're gonna find solutions that are gonna work for everyone in the company. Um, and I don't wanna sound like completely in, evangelical about it, like, but I've seen it, I've seen it very powerful. It's been very transformative. Um, and I, I really want to bring that kind of healing into workplaces because to me, that is how we create true equity and inclusion. I, I have one follow-up to that, Kelly. If people engage in this practice, does it potentially give more employees a feeling in the stake of the operation of the company? hundred um, percent. If, if you have employees that are, you know, disengaged and they're, they're losing hope in terms of, of how they see the, the culture moving forward, um, this puts everybody on the same level. So it's not that management is going to do their own little circle somewhere else and have their own discussions. It's really everybody can be in the circle together. Um, and the idea that when we're in a circle together, there are no sides. There's nobody above. There's nobody below. Um, and it's a, it's a practice. It gets You have to get used to kind of doing that, of being vulnerable, being open, and being honest. Uh, but once you're able to do it um, and you're listening to each other, really listening to each other, um, it's amazing in, in terms of how you can turn things around in the workplace. Kelly, I imagine these next couple of weeks are going to be very busy for you as part of a Disability Employment Awareness Month. So all the best to you. Hang in there and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti will be here with a review of the Netflix action thriller End of the Road. But first, Tesla's Optimus robot continues to evolve. Michelle Franzen explains how in Tech Trends.
last year it was just a person in a robot suit. You know, compared to that, it's going to be very impressive. Tesla's CEO Elon Musk unveiling the company's new robot Optimus, designed to handle repetitive or dangerous tasks. Business insider's Alistair Barr. He predicts that this new robotic future where, where there's not many human employees, the profits from that and the, and the, the, the type of ec- economic activity that will be produced from that will be so great that governments and other entities will be able to afford to actually pay humans to basically do nothing. Earlier this year, Tesla announced it was cutting 10% of its salaried staff, though the company said hourly staff was expected to grow. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. It's time for a movie review. And what we haven't had a chance to do in a while is roll a trailer before the movie review. So allow me to offer up a little bit of pre-description for this trailer for the Netflix movie End of the Road, starring Queen Latifah. In the clip, a family travels on the road and stays the night over at the Sunset Motel. Oh boy. Where some suspicious activity happens next door. They encounter a body and notice a bag tucked in a cupboard. The next day, the cops arrive to the scene and begin searching for the family who have already hit the road. So let's play that clip. Everybody just get some sleep. We got a long day ahead of us on the road tomorrow. Somebody throwing a party or something? No, no, no. This sounds like a fight. Look at me, sir. folks stand next door. Hey! There's a fortune in missing drug money. They're in the whole world of danger. What did you do, Reggie? This money could save our lives. It can end our lives. Okay, all right. Getting some serious uh, No Country for Old Men kind of vibes on this one. Let's bring in Amy Amanti to review the film. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you, too. So I think we get an idea of what this movie's about based on that trailer. Did this film have you on the edge of your seat? Well, um, maybe. Perhaps there were moments where I was on the edge of my seat, but the creative team behind this particular film is trying to categorize a new genre and they're calling the genre i thought i mean it it seems really obvious but they're calling this genre family-based action road trip thriller that's that's a lot of (laughs) that's a lot of descriptors right um to create i mean like we're used to uh genres uh being very simplified but this is very complex and so they're trying to start a new genre so basically what we're looking at here is a little bit of thriller mixed with a little bit of like Hallmark movie of the week mixed with a little bit of like afternoon special. Okay. I actually think some of those other things may take away from the thriller action aspect of it, but that's, that's just me and and I haven't seen it yet. So what stood out to you as you took this movie in? Well, I think you probably hit the nail on on the head there with the, uh, the, the bits of the thriller that I was expecting there to be more thrill 
but there is, you know, I mean, they're, they're, again, they're trying to package this all things for all people in, a, in, in some kind of way, which I think is admirable, truly. Uh, we don't necessarily have enough movies that are something you can watch with your entire family. Um, what, what stood out to me about this particular film is uh, the representation in this film. So I did some, you know, searching around of uh, who the creative team is, uh, producers, directors, executive producers, writers. Um, and this team, this uh, creative team, the cast is, is predominantly uh, African-American folks. Um, so they're telling a, a black story. And this becomes really important because um, oftentimes the stereotype is that we've got uh, gangsters that are people of color. And the narrative here is switched. So your bad guys are white guys and your family is a black family. And so we're experiencing things that, that black folks experience in terms of racism. We're seeing that insidiousness of racism in this. And I think, you know, Dave, we, I talk about representation a lot uh, uh, when I'm reviewing movies, but I think that lens is so important and so much needed um, because there is this, this thing where white folks sometimes say, what do you mean racism? What are you experiencing? So this is that insidiousness of racism. It's, um, I, I don't want to say any more than that because I, I, for me, it was really, really impactful to be able to witness that through the telling of this story. Let's talk about the performances here. Queen Latifah yeah. is the big draw. I mean, we're talking now about almost 30 years in the industry. Uh, for Queen Latifah, whether it be TV shows or movies. How did this role suit her? Yeah, or music, right? Uh, also yeah. a musician. Yeah. Um, Queen Latifah um, is got this nice, well-rounded um, character where she's uh, a soft mother because she needs to be. She's a, uh, a recently widowed, which is not a spoiler. It's like the very first moment of the, the movie. So she's taken her family across country, and a part of this is supposed to be a bonding experience as they relocate to a new part of, of the country, right? So she's got this nice soft motherness, but then she's got this like fierce mama bear thing that comes out when it's absolutely necessary to come out. So I thought that that dynamic was was quite um, quite interesting. And then of course we also have Ludacris, who- Luda! Uh, <laughs> Luda, right? Chris Ludacris um, uh, in this film as well, playing the brother and Bo Bridges, who I haven't seen in a while in a lot of film or television um, in this as well. So, uh, you know, you got three big names here, and and they show up. Well, if you want to go platinum, Ludacris is the one you should get, 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 according to a Sierra song. <laughs> um, how was Ludacris's performance? How was Bo Bridges' performance? How were the other performances in this movie? Because it sounds like they were trying to accomplish a lot thematically. Mm-hmm. Were the actors able to drive home those nails? Yeah, um, I think, yeah. Yeah, I would say to the most for the most part, I would say yes. Um, there's an interesting switch with Bo Bridges' character, which um, you may sort of see coming because some of this is a little bit predictable. Um, but then, you know, for me, I, what I noticed was the character switch, and that was really interesting from a from a, a, an acting perspective. Um, anytime you have dynamic characters, that's where the interest is. We want characters that are flawed, that are dynamic. You know, if you have a one note character. Yeah, it gets kind of boring kind of quickly. So I would say all three of these characters are quite dynamic and, and the actors played them to the best of their abilities. And I, I really like um, Queen Latifah in this, especially because again, she's got a very, she is the most dynamic character, the most three-dimensional character. 
What about the audio description? I know you've already mentioned that the lens that was already applied here was an inclusive lens. Did the mm-hmm. audio description meet that standard? It was a miss. The audio description was a miss. Um, and I think, again, when we talk about content that's really culturally important and culturally significant in storytelling, that diversity in the description becomes all that more important. So the characters reference their own blackness in some regard, but not at the very top of the film. So you're kind of getting you know, into it and you're thinking, okay, um, are, are they or aren't they or are they or aren't they? And, but there are a couple of moments where there is, um, and I'm referring it to as an insidious racism, um, it's in your face, but if you aren't able to see that it's a white character speaking to a black character, you may miss that in terms of the racism. And that's where I thought, um, as a, as a, as a, a listener, as, as opposed to a visual watcher of the film, that's where I missed out. And I don't, I, I think that's, an, I think it's important that I understand those aspects of this film. And I, some of those were a miss for me. After the trailer, I mentioned that I got some No Country for Old Men vibes, uh, the movie mm-hmm. from 2007. Can't believe it's already been 15 years, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I would also say this maybe almost a little bit of a hell or high water vibe to this as well in terms of the being on the road, kind of being on the run, being pursued with money at stake. Would you mm-hmm. say that, that that there's any comparison to those movies and this movie? If people liked those movies, are they going to get something similar from this? Or does the Saturday morning sort of after school special, I know I just merged uh, genres right there. Uh, <laughs> I just mixed up my own metaphors on that one. Did some of that other messaging maybe take away from some of the storytelling that we got in No Country for Old Men or Hell or High Water? I would say that's a that's a tricky question uh, for me. Well, for what it's worth, I, yes. I just referenced Academy Award winning movies. Yeah. So like I like that's yeah. the top of the genre. This is not an Academy Award nominee. Uh, I hope it isn't I, because it's, it's not that kind of caliber of film. Truly, um, it is what it is. You'll get value out of it for watching what it is. For me, I I kind of was when I when I clicked play had thought it was going to be much more of what you were just referencing. Uh, that I would be on the seat of my pants the whole time. And, and um, so like, again, there's some of that, but there, it is a mixture of this, like, you know, wah, wah kind of, and even the way it's filmed, um, you get kind of that Hallmark vibe mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, like big 3D effects. And you know that this was a movie that, you know, cost a lot of money yeah. to make. I, yeah. I actually wonder, because as as you know, I have a lot of friends who are working in, in the Hallmark space or in the mm-hmm. Lifetime space. That That's where a lot of them are cutting their chops now, not just as actors, but directors and writers as well. Yeah. I wonder if perhaps it's become too easy to make a movie like that. that that's because well, that's what people are familiar with. That's what they know how to yeah. do. So when they're getting these opportunities to do something, they're making movies that maybe feel a little bit too much like that and not like a filmmaker's film. Well, you know, Hallmark has, uh, and I just, I just spent time at in Toronto at the uh, Content Canada conference. Um, thank you, AMI. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, and Hallmark was there, and they were talking very specifically about their, uh, like, their blueprint of how they create things. And I think we all know this that you, when you watch a Hallmark film, you kind of know exactly what's going to happen. They have the same blueprint, and that is their success. That is their recipe for success. We become very familiar with that format. Now, you throw in thriller in there, and you think to yourself, okay, this is not going to be a Hallmark-style movie, but then it kind of has that sort of sappiness to it mm. um, that is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, I think, again, I think they tried to be all things to all people is what I think that they tried to yeah. do. 
And I think if they would have stuck to one particular genre, it would have been a more powerful film. It's it's a dangerous thing trying to please too many different tastes with these movies. Sometimes you really have to be particular, especially in an age where monoculture is dead. Uh, unless you make right. Top Gun. And when you make Top Gun, everybody's going to love your movie, uh, especially <laughs> boys. Uh, Amy, I think, I think maybe we've given this away a little bit here in our meanderings, but what would you rate End of the Road out of 10? I gave it a 7 and a half out of 10. I think there's some really redeeming things in here for folks. And I think that in terms of representation, it's the kind of movie that white folks need to watch. I really, I really do. Um, but you know, take it with a grain of salt. There's a little bit of sappy, sappy, sappy in there. All right. Understood. <laughs> and well taken. Well said, Amy, thank you for this. We appreciate it. I think, I think we just lost Amy. It sounded like something fell there, but that's all good. We're just saying goodbye to I'm Amy. Here. I'm waving at you. I'm just saying goodbye. Right. I said well said and well done. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> that's Amy Amanti with a review of the movie End of the Road, which you can find on Netflix. Let's wrap up the hour with one quick news story. Concerns are being raised that authorities in Ottawa are not keeping foreign embassies safe. Rob Westgate has more. Last month, Russia complained that Ottawa police and the RCMP were not taking things seriously after someone threw what appears to have been a Molotov cocktail at its embassy. A 1961 agreement binds countries to keep diplomats safe and prevent damage to embassies. Former diplomats say Ottawa constantly assesses risks in the capital and very rarely offers 24-7 protection to ambassadors. The RCMP said earlier this month it was investigating the incident at the Russian embassy, but neither the Mounties or the Ottawa police responded to a request for an interview. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October the 3rd, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we continue to look into some of these new Amazon devices. Marco Flalo will tell you about the Halo Rise. Always interested to find out what Mark has to say about some of this new gear. It's been Apple for a couple weeks. Today it's Amazon. Who knows what the next one will be? Or the letter S. I'll let you put the pieces together, but you know. You know the companies that I'm talking about. Columbia has not helped the province with its lingering wildfire season. The BC Wildfire Service lists the 11 hectare blaze in Coquitlam's Minahada Regional Park as burning out of control. They say the fight has been made extra difficult with crews having to navigate extremely steep and challenging terrain. The park in Coquitlam is currently closed to the public. Over to the prairies, where several Alberta doctors have penned a letter to health officials saying the surgery program at Red Deer Regional Hospital could be on the, quote, brink of collapse. The five-page letter was addressed to Health Minister Jason Copping and Alberta Health Services. Doctors are asking for emergency funding to recruit more anesthesiologists. They're also looking for increased training positions for nursing and anesthesia and looking for stipend approval for surgeons. 
Over to Ontario, the Canadian Union of Public Employees is expected to announce the result of a strike vote today as contract talks for education workers continue with the Ontario government. The union represents 55,000 employees, including librarians, custodians and administration staff. The voting has been taking place for just over a week. The union asked the province for an annual raise of 11.7%. The Ontario government is offering a 2% raise to education workers, making less than $40,000 a year and 1.25% wage hikes for everyone else. And then over to Atlantic Canada, power outages continue into the second week for thousands of people in both PEI and Nova Scotia as people continue to feel the impact of Hurricane Fiona. Emily Javesky files this report. Officials with Nova Scotia Power and Maritime Electric have said that outages in some areas will persist into this week. In the hard-hit area around Sydney, Nova Scotia, the utility said line crews were going street to street in certain neighbourhoods yesterday to restore power. Most public schools in Prince Edward Island are set to open today after being closed for a week. At least six will remain closed because of significant storm damage. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. It's not all bad news for folks in Atlantic Canada. The minimum wage has gone up in three of the four Atlantic provinces. Nicole Reese has the numbers. New Brunswick has instituted a $1 increase, bringing its rate to the highest in the region at $13.75 per hour. A 50-cent jump in Newfoundland and Labrador means the rate in Canada's most easterly province currently stands at $13.70 per hour. Nova Scotia's minimum wage went up 25 cents to hit $13.60 per hour. The rate did not increase in Prince Edward Island, where the government announced last week the minimum wage would increase from $13.70 to $14.50 on January 1st. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the regional news. Now let's talk about what's happening in sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, we've got a lot to chat about today, but let's start in the world of baseball. Brock, usually you hear me contest the idea that the Toronto Blue Jays are Canada's national team. I think that it's some Toronto hokum, some center of the universe nonsense, But I'll tell you this, Brock, I was at a bar last night. I know what a party boy on a Sunday. And I was at a table surrounded by Blue Jays fans who already have their playoff tickets in hand before the team has even clenched that home field advantage for the wild card rounds. Now, maybe it's too small of a sample size, Brock. But man, I'm telling you, sitting at that table last night, I was feeling that energy, buddy. Yeah, I was in uh, Toronto late yesterday afternoon as well. And uh I was uh, an audience member of Family Feud Canada, as I often do on weekends. But uh, it just the vibe around the town, like everywhere you turn, it's like Blue Jays jersey, Blue Jays jersey, Blue Jays jersey. And then every once in a while, you'll see like a, a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. And then yesterday, I saw an Edmonton Oilers jersey, and I was like, oh, good. I'm glad to know there is love beyond the, Tor- the Toronto Maple Leafs. And the Toronto Blue Jays. It was very cool walking around the city, but busy as ever down there. And the vibe is very good. And uh, Toronto is putting themselves in a decent position to uh, to to clinch that home field. Yeah. But it's not quite there just yet. Well, not not there just yet, but they're basically one win away. They win one more game. That, that's their magic number. Win one game or have Seattle lose one game and boom, you're in. Home field advantage. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's pretty well there, but 
we need it needed to happen. Uh, it'll happen. I, I would imagine they will have a pretty good series against uh, Baltimore coming up, mm-hmm. I hope. And uh, all will be well. But, yeah, it's good. it was a good weekend and uh, good to be in Toronto and feeling the vibes of the city. Yeah, they, they beat up on the Red Sox this weekend. They absolutely went after the Red Sox and absolutely beat them down into the ground, bashed them into a hole, which is always nice to do against a division rival. And out of that series, Brock, you came up with a really interesting stat for Canadian baseball players. Yes, I did. So two Canadian pitchers became the first Toronto Blue Jays in franchise history to have both the win and the save. So the win went to Zach Pop, who is Canadian, and Jordan Romano, who is also Canadian. And uh, really, really cool stat to kind of end the weekend on. And just to talk a little bit more in-depthly on the uh, Toronto Blue Jays and beating the pulp out of the uh, Boston Red Sox, they only lost three times this year to the Red Sox and uh, pretty good uh, series they had against the Red Sox. And I love to see division rivals and the Blue Jays doing some winning. So cool statistic there and a great weekend overall. The vibe last night, again, not, not, not that my small sample size at a, at a bar table at 8 PM on a Sunday should really be like the, the be all and end all of this. But man, a lot of these guys were, and girls, I should mention too, were big time Jays fans who've gone to a dozen or so games this year. They were all sort of under the impression saying this team is really putting it together. They're, they're trending in the right direction at the right time. Yeah. And the thing is like everyone we've had, the Blue Jays have had their struggles, but my argument is when do you want them to peak? Now is the time we want them to peak. This is the time they're headed into the, you know, the postseason, and, and it, it's all good. This is the time I want to see this team put it all together, and they certainly are doing that. What we do know, Dave, now is that we will not have to play uh, Cleveland or Tampa Bay at the Trop. If we do play Tampa Bay, it will be uh, in uh, Toronto mm-hmm. if they end up catching Seattle, but it's looking more and more clear that it's going to be the Seattle Mariners that we will play, but an, uh, another game or so, We'll, we'll tell that true story, but yeah. lots of lots of good stuff. Would you rather play uh, Seattle out of all this? Oh, yeah. Versus, yeah, me too. I, I think yeah. Seattle might actually be a little more talented than Tampa Bay, but that Tampa team just has so much playoff experience. They went to the World Series two years ago. Now, admittedly, it's not quite the same team that went to the World Series two years ago, but the fact is Tampa is pretty much a perennial playoff team. Seattle hasn't made it in 20 years. I would much rather play against the team who this is a new space for them when a couple of these Toronto Blue Jays players at least know what meaningful baseball is in late October, late September, early October. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that Tampa Bay just seems to play Toronto really well. They always have and they always will. So for me, it's like, get out of here. I'll play any other team other than other than Tampa. I don't even care if... You know, if we had Tampa at home, I don't want to play them at all. Give me Seattle every day versus this. But then again, if they do win the wildcard series, they're going to match up against the Houston Astros, which is going to be a a tough test. But then it's a three out of five and we'll get there when we get there. But we need to win that first two out of three. And I think their best chance is against uh, Seattle for sure. Brock, let's turn to football before we get to the fun. Let's deal with the serious between the last time you and I spoke, Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa suffered a significant concussion on the field on Thursday night. 
reportedly four days after dealing with another concussion that let's say that it was somewhat unconfirmed by the independent concussion specialist, but the controversy around those two incidents with Tuatunga Vailoa in four days has led to some significant conversations about player safety, head injuries, and the independent evaluators hired by the NFL Players Association. Yeah, that independent evaluator you speak about has been uh, removed from his duties, and I'm not surprised of the situation. I mean, that hit was unreal, what took place on Tua. And, you know, I think if your job as an independent, you know, uh, uh, evaluator in this case is to be independent, you need to take a look at that in various modes. And no matter what speed you looked at those hits, you have to know that his head was jarred in the wrong uh, direction and wrong way. And so to me, I think that the NFLPA made the right decision in letting this individual go because clearly he made the wrong decision here. And Tua is really in a, in a uh, bad spot. He's had a couple of headshots and we'll see how this, how this uh, plays, but I've had a couple of concussions in my career uh, in different ways. And, and it's not nice to have concussions and I've never had anybody come barreling at me making a hit. It's just been off the field situations that have taken place, but concussions are not nice at any level. And when you have that level of impact, it's like, yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like. We, we understand that football is a contact sport and concussions are going to happen, but this was not a case of a concussion happening. This was a case of the protocol failing. There's no way he should have been let back into the game last Sunday against Buffalo when he crumbled walking off the field. Didn't like, he didn't stumble. He crumbled to the ground as he was trying to walk off the field and couldn't walk under his own power, somehow gets approved to go back in the game, and then has his head hit again last Thursday and lay prone on the field with his hands clenched, looking like claws in front of his face. It was jarring and alarming as he was taken to uh, the University of Cincinnati Head Trauma Center. He was discharged on Thursday night, but the the hope is that, A, when you're talking about two headshots, significant headshots in four days, that they shut him down for a month, six weeks, eight weeks. I'm a Dolphins fan, Brock. I don't care. This guy's health and safety should be the number one thing, and the NFL has to re-eval- reevaluate their entire concussion protocol. That That, that is clear. And the other thing is, remember a couple of years ago when uh, Patrick Mahomes had a concussion and then all of a sudden he was fit to play in the the, uh, game against the Bills and they went on to win. It's the same kind of situation. I I get feared that they're putting these guys in bad positions because it's for the the team and for the business. And you're right, 100% right when you say, listen, this goes far beyond the business of of, uh, football and you need to take the athlete into into consideration. And I think time and time again, I've been questioning the NFL and been like, are you looking out for the individual? Or are you looking out for the game as a whole? Because yeah. neither you're doing a service, because even if you send the guy out and play, you're not going to be seeing the talent of Tua that you should, because clearly he's injured and shouldn't be playing. And as a, as a Bills fan, I, I don't want to see this. I would. The game is better with Tua in it. Uh, you know, I've I've enjoyed watching Tua, but again, you cannot put a player 
at this level of, of danger when it comes to concussions. It's too risky. Yeah, we're at the point where simply asking them, can you remember your mother's maiden name is not a good enough evaluation. We need to be talking about like significant scans. Not that, not that brain scans necessarily reveal everything you need to know, but we need to go well beyond. How many fingers am I holding up? What's your mother's maiden name? We need to be a little bit or, more precise in our science on this. Or, or, or what day of the week is it? Obviously, if he's playing football, it's likely either Sunday or Monday. So that narrows down narrows it down pretty quickly as to what day of the week. I don't I think you gotta like you say, you gotta go deeper than that because some of those questions are pretty obvious answers, no matter your head trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Brock, that was the serious. Let's do a couple quick slants for some fun. Let's start with the Philadelphia Eagles, where they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 21 29-21. The Jaguars quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, turned the ball over five times. He says it cost the team a win. With four uh, turnovers no and to still have a chance to go win the game at the end, that's that doesn't usually happen. So it shows that we played well in other areas. So uh, we got to clean that up, and uh, and we will. And I'm confident in that. But it's definitely definitely sucks right now. It was uh, monsoon-like conditions for that game in Philadelphia. But Brock, that was a disappointing result for the Jaguars as they were up 14 nothing early. It was, and uh, Doug Peterson had a homecoming. Who's the coach of the uh, Jaguars? and is the only coach that has led Philadelphia to a Super Bowl. Yeah, they shut that down pretty quickly. Uh, as you say, the five turnovers was just brutal. I mean, the defense was pretty pretty good, but again, Trevor Lawrence kind of did it to himself with mishandling the football. I get the weather was there and all of that, but it was just a terrible, terrible game. And uh, I, I, as the clip was playing and you said uh, – cost the team a win i was about to say no kidding i cost the team a win <laughs> five turnovers no team is ever going to come back from that when your quarterback uh gives you a five turnovers it's just it was an ugly ugly game all around i'm telling you brock philadelphia is for real though i've, I've been on them since before the season this philadelphia team is really really good uh monsoon like conditions yesterday notwithstanding that offense can pound you on the ground they can pound you in the air and that defense oh boy they get after the quarterback this philly team is really really good must watch TV. It's becoming, and and it's you know uh, not a lot of people were high on Philadelphia, but they're four and zero for a reason, and they're looking really really good, and they're kind of my uh, NFC team that's you know I'm kind of watching because yeah. it's 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 a good good team to watch overall. Let's talk about what was the marquee game yesterday where the Buffalo Bills also overcame a significant deficit to beat the Baltimore Ravens on a last second field goal, 23 to 20. Let's first hear from Bills quarterback Josh Allen saying scoring right before halftime changed the game. Instead of going down, you know, 20 to 6 or 20 to 3, it's 20 to 10. So uh, one stop away, we're back in this thing. And our defense, like I said, played outstanding um, against one of the better quarterbacks in this league. A lot of regret in the Baltimore locker room too, Brock. Let's hear from Ravens tight end Mark Andrews. Says the game was theirs for the taking. It's unfortunate that it didn't play out, you know, the way we wanted it to. Um, you know, but as a team, all you can ask for is to be in those situations and have that opportunity. That's what we had today. We didn't get it done. Uh, we'll be better. So, Brock, it's not simply that the Ravens blew a big lead to the Buffalo Bills. It's that they had an opportunity to take the lead late in the fourth quarter and decided to go for it on fourth down, just go for the touchdown instead of taking what should have been a guaranteed three points. Yeah, I, I question that decision. And I question it on the basis that 
do you guys not know Josh Allen's arm and how quickly he can get it up the field? If if you guys went for the field goal, the best they could have done is tied it up, and then it becomes a, a coin flip. You gave the Buffalo Bills the opportunity to come back and win it on a field goal. If I if I was Baltimore media, I'm questioning the decision making because again, did Buffalo win the game? Yes, but I would also argue Baltimore gave it to them and lost it on themselves versus Buffalo winning. They took mm. advantage of a poor mistake, of course, but I would say Baltimore beat themselves yesterday. The analytics say that if you go for the touchdown you're and get it, you have a better chance of winning the game. And that goes back to sort of your, your, your note before, which is, yeah, no kidding. Right? Like, oh, seven <laughs> points is worth more than three. Thank you, <laughs> analytics. The, the, but the, 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 the Ravens are a team who clearly has tried, who have tried to utilize analytics a couple times in the last couple of years in terms of going for two-point conversions instead of kicking the single-point conversion to win a game instead of tying a game. But it seems every time they're doing it, it's backfiring. I know that the true analytics heads will tell you, well, in the aggregate, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to even itself out. Yeah, but in the short term, it's going to cost John Harbaugh their coach's job. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing is that, like, I know we're being a little bit Captain Obvious in all this, but I know that overtime is is a coin flip, but I'd rather go into overtime. Here comes another Captain Obvious statement. I'd rather go into overtime than than give up, you know, the game altogether. And, yeah. like, I'd rather take my coin flip and say, well, you know, let me let me take a risk here versus – walking off the field and not even having another chance to do it. Because mm -hmm. again, Bass is a really good kicker and can kick the football and you gave them an opportunity and they walked through the door and took advantage and won the game. It's different if you're up by three points and you're near the goal line and you say, hey, if we score a touchdown here, we end the game versus kicking for three. Now the other team has to go for a touchdown and they can beat you on the last drive. I get where the analytics play is there. Analytics should say, Put points on the board when you can win the game with less than a minute left. That's what analytics should say. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> okay, like, we're, we're in agreement. We're Neanderthals, apparently. Yeah. yeah. It's, and again, maybe in the moment of situations where it's like, as coach, you just kind of, you're sitting there, you're in the moment, it's all well and good. And for us, it's easy to sit here the next morning and say, this is what I would have done. But maybe in the moment, you, you have different ways of looking at it. But I think all sports overall goes way too far into analytics. Don't even get me started on pitchers throwing 100 pitches and then <laughs> that's it. Like we could spend hours talking about that, but we won't. It, 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 it's, analytics becomes too much of just that. Analytics are on paper and it's on paper for a reason, Dave. Yeah. Brock, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of the Neutral Zone. We'll get to a we'll get a preview of that tomorrow when we talk to Brock, just after 10 a.m. Eastern time. But for now, let's talk to Alex Smythe, who has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Increasing cloudiness this morning with a chance of showers this afternoon, and nine is the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's sunny, a high of 12, and a frost advisory is in effect. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's sunny as well, a high of 15, and that frost advisory is also in effect there. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's sunshine as well, a high of 13, and the frost advisory is in effect in Quebec City as well. Over to Toronto, Ontario, it is sunshine, and 17 is the high. 
Up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 20. In Brandon, Manitoba, increasing cloudiness with the chance of showers late morning and into the afternoon, with 19 being the high. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with a high of 21. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny with a high of 22. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds that will be clearing up around noon, and the high is 23. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and the high is 12. In Kelowna, BC, it's sunshine, and 26 is the high. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny and hazy this afternoon, and the high there is 20. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Mark Flalo stops by the show. He's got the inside scoop on a couple of Amazon's newest devices, including the Halo Rise. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Amazon is showing off some new products and devices. We talked about a couple of them with Stephen Scott last Thursday. Well, there's more to unpack, so let's bring in Mark Aflalo, one of the hosts of Double Tap TV, which you can find on AMI-tv Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm well. So there's all kinds of neat stuff that Amazon's yeah. dropped here. So let's start with the Amazon Halo Rise. Those are just words, Mark. Unpack the <laughs> word salad for me. What is the Amazon Halo Rise? Let's let's describe the physicality of this first. The way this looks is it looks like a puck, like a hockey puck, about half the thickness on its sides. So you're looking at a circle with a nice metallic, you know, shiny metallic base. And on the front of this puck, if you're looking at it straight on, you got a little digital clock on the bottom, and you've got a ring of LED around it. Now, okay, okay. important to know here, there's no microphone, there's no camera. This is not like your traditional Echo device that people worry about keeping in their bedroom, because this one is supposed to be in your bedroom, Dave. So I know, the obvious question. Okay, right? well, it's supposed to be in my bedroom, <laughs> so why my bedroom? Why is it specifically designed for my bedroom? This is the first sleep tracking device that is designed to be non-invasive. So it's not something you wear on your wrist. It's not something you strap underneath a pillow. It's not stuff you strap to your chest. Literally using sensors that are built in, temperature sensors, ambient sensors, um, et cetera, et cetera. It is able to analyze your sleep pattern. The goal, of course, to help you sleep better, to get better insights into your sleep, to better optimize your sleep, and, of course, to understand your respiration and everything that goes around, around with it. They, they call it the first contactless sleep tracker. tracker. English, Mark, English. So, so if it doesn't have a microphone and it mm -hmm. doesn't have a camera, how's it doing that? That's a very good question. It's magic. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Bezos magic. Jeff Bezos magic. Exactly. No, it's, it's, listen, it's listening to my snoring. And my night there, terrors and being like, wow, there is a microphone, but not night. microphone in the sense that you would normally um, normally associate with an echo device. You know, normally you'd associate one that you can give it a commands and do things with. This microphone is designed specifically to listen for things like snoring, breathing patterns. Not only that, but the ambient sensors can can check, you know, temperature rise, where you are in the room, et cetera, et cetera, and how that affects your sleep overall. 
and of course you can control the whole thing with the uh, AELXA mm-hmm. app, which <laughs> yeah, you like that, don't you? Well done, um, I appreciate it. Well, well, then, no problem. Then, then why the LED lights? Is that because is this part of their alarm clock feature? Exactly. It allows you to slowly uh, fall asleep and also rise very naturally. So it's one of those things that, you know, ambient light helps you fall asleep better sometimes. It also helps you wake very, very slowly. So it's one of these little features that are there. I think it's also that because this is an alarm clock at the end of the day, um, it it does allow you to kind of combine those features. So it's a very fancy alarm clock. How much is this fancy? (laughs) How how much is this fancy alarm clock going to cost me? No Canadian pricing yet because they haven't announced availability in Canada yet, but 149 US. So I'm going to go with like 210 Canadian. Okay, that's pretty pricey for an alarm clock, especially because yeah. my phone services my alarm clock now. It's you know that's a pretty pricey alarm clock too. Well, that that's true, but it does other <laughs> things. It does other things as well. Uh, so okay, let's move on from this fancy alarm clock to yeah. their third generation, Amazon's third generation of the Fire TV cube so i think people would understand what fire tv is in the sense that typically it was a stick you would plug into your television yeah what's the fire tv cube so the fire tv cube is a media player like all the other fire tv media players like the apple tv etc etc so when plugged in to a television you can access obviously the amazon ecosystem of apps and of course movies and all that fun stuff you might want to download the difference with this cube, other than the fact that it, you know, does those things, uh, it's got a material design. It still looks like a nice cube. It's got a blue ring on the top. You can control it with your voice, but it has a new feature, and that is an HDMI input. Why an HDMI input? Because they designed this to be a layer in front of everything you might plug into it. So if you've got a cable box, for example, you plug your cable box into the Fire TV Cube and then plug the cube into your television so that it can actually control your cable box. This way, you're always using the Amazon Cube or the Fire TV Cube to control everything in your living room. It becomes the hub to everything. It can control your cable box. It can initiate recordings. It can play back recordings. It can search for TV programs when you set up your TV provider. It can change the channel, all with your voice. Plus, it has great features like new Wi-Fi 6SE, which is a super fast Wi-Fi protocol. Um, it's got support for 4K, Ultra HD, HDR, Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos. Uh, and all that fun stuff that goes along with it, plus, of course, your favorite assistant that we mentioned earlier. So I can see where that is something that could actually be quite appealing to a TV viewer or a media user who is from the Blinder Low Vision community, that now you've built in voice control to all your stuff through this cube. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives you, it really becomes a front end to anything that you might have in your living room. Ideally, I would have seen this come with a couple HDMI inputs so you can right. switch to your gaming Multiples, console, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, you can get away with that. There are ways to do that with you know HDMI splitters and stuff like that. But it really is a way to get people into that Amazon ecosystem on your television and really kind of unify everything around your home because they know people have multiple devices. You could potentially plug an Apple TV directly into it and control that as well. So there are other uses for it more than just your cable box. But the example they give is obviously giving you that voice control over something that traditionally doesn't have it. Mark, I know you mentioned uh, price tag is something that uh, we don't necessarily have in Canadian dollars. Oh, but, but I do for this one. You do for this one. So what are we looking at <laughs> price tag-wise for the third-generation Firecube TV? 
Okay. Again, like these are these these num these numbers are high, but I can see how if maybe you were going to be buying an Echo anyway, that maybe exactly maybe like if you want to put something in. Plus, it's a speaker. Don't forget, it's a good high yeah. quality speaker. So you have got the Dolby Atmos and all that control to do it. So it's a pretty you know what I think under two hundred dollars. That's a good threshold for someone you might like in the gift buying you know mm -hmm. scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of like you, like Dave, like you and I. I might buy this for you Ooh. because I kind of like you. I'm not 100% <laughs> like I haven't committed over the $200 range, and I don't hate you, so I'm not going to buy you a sock. It's that kind of uh, that kind of scenario. I I am grateful for all <laughs> gifts, whether they're a sock or a fire or a fire cube TV. I'm I'm just I'm just someone like that who's <laughs> willing to include myself across across the uh, the whole spectrum there. Mark, one last question before we split. We're, sure. We've been talking a lot about reveals, right? We did the big Apple event a couple yeah. of weeks ago and talked about some of their new tech. Does Amazon come with the same buzz? When Amazon's announcing something, does it get the same brambles as, say, Samsung or Apple? Not, not really because they don't do the whole public thing. They don't put on this show and, and tell people three weeks ahead of time. It's an invite-only event and a live stream that we had to kind of pry our way into. We knew it was coming, but they don't really have a big media buzz around it. Afterwards, as they release the products, they tend to get a little bit more PR friendly about it, but not as crazy. Not like, you know, Google, who has an event in, in, in 10 days from now and, and other companies that are, you know, still have some stuff to announce. They, they intentionally create this mm. false sense of excitement around stuff. Amazon doesn't really care about that because I think the caliber and the, and the array of the products that they come out are really just kind of every day. It's not like this once a year, you know, reveal of this $2,000 product. It's really just, oh, it's a new Echo, it's a new, you know, new yeah. product. And they also, I think with the lack of fanfare, it gives them a little bit less pressure to A, get it to market, and also, you know, things that they don't necessarily succeed, succeed they can kind of just brush off and say, yeah, we forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, we're Amazon. We uh, we, yeah. we have hits and misses, but uh, just log on to Amazon.ca and find all our good stuff. Exactly. We'll offer you deals. Hey, you're here for <laughs> toilet paper, we sold you a tablet. That's how we roll here at Amazon. Listen, at the end of the day, Dave, it's all a portal to make you, to make you buy stuff stuff on Amazon yeah. really at the end of the day. Yeah. And it works and it works. Oh yeah, it yeah, does. I, I bought a bunch of toothbrushes on the weekend because I didn't feel like walking to the shoppers. Uh, Mark. That is lazy. I, oof, man, you have no idea. Uh, Mark, <laughs> I'm, I am, I may be lazy, but I'm always excited for a new episode of Double Tap TV. Oh. So what's coming up this week? We're going to be talking all about apps to help you read on your computer. Oh, I love it. That's going to be a super informative episode. That's coming your way Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Mark, have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the co-hosts of Double Tap TV. Coming up after the break, I've got your accessibility story roundup about accessibility at museums, and that'll lead us into a roundtable conversation with Nazreen, Rumia, and Alex. This is now with Dave Brown on ami back it's now with dave brown on ami before we bring in rummy and nisreen and alex let's get the accessibility story roundup this one coming to you from harlem world magazine museum accessibility audio description is just the first step so there's quite a bit in this article but i'm going to boil it down to the to the basics, the what you need to know. So here's the first question. What are the typical barriers at museums? So 
physical barriers like stairs, narrow doorways, a lack of braille or audio descriptions, or attitudes of staff and other visitors. I'm sure from time to time you've been at a museum and a visitor or staff kind of hustles you along because maybe you're taking too long to try and decipher some very tiny writing or trying to look very closely at an image or a picture and you're giving off sort of weird vibes and they shuffle you along. That's not autobiographical at all. I've certainly never been shuffled away from things before. What are some of the solutions? Well, there's an organization called Museum Access Consortium. They've developed an app that provides turn-by-turn directions for people who are blind or have low vision on their way through a museum. Currently, that's being piloted at the Smithsonian Institution's Natural Museum of American History. There's also things like better training for staff and raising awareness for visitors. So that's what I was mentioning. Maybe they can help you instead of jostling you along. And there's also things like special programming, hours, tours. I know, for example, there's an organization like Philly Touch Tours that organizes special hours for touch tours of various art exhibits in coordination with the museum. So a few of the major museums out there in the world that have developed particular detailed accessibility policy include the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the British Museum in London, the Louvre in France, or the Vatican Museums in Vatican City. So those are just a couple examples for you. But I want to bring in Ramya Amuthan, Nazreen Abdelmajid, and Alex Smythe on this one to talk about museums. Because I don't know where you guys land on this. Like, for example, I did not go to Nuit Blanche this weekend as part of the uh, Toronto Art Festival. Just wasn't into it. I don't feel comfortable at these places. So Nazreen, what can a museum do to make you feel more comfortable? Well, I have to be honest, the last time I've been to a museum was my years in high school. And I just remember lack of uh, elevators or the elevator was on the opposite side of where all your classmates were when you were touring around. So I felt left out of that. And um, I I remember my whole years, all four years of high school, I was in either crutches or in a wheelchair. So Either way, it was much, it was a barrier for me. And the descriptions are pretty small. So if maybe the descriptions were a bit bigger, or like you said, audio descriptions would be amazing for that. Yeah, I think definitely bigger fonts. Like there's no reason for any public place for fonts to be like eight. Like even regular people are going to have to squint to read that. I also like the museums that have the little button, right? You press the little button and it reads the thing to you on a speaker. I'm like, no, that's that's how we get some. I want to see those. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing that more and more. It's becoming more common, but for a long time, it was very hit or miss whether you'd get them. Ramya, what about you? What would make you feel more welcome at a museum? I've had these conversations on a professional level as well, consulting on some of the museums and art galleries and projects regarding accessibility, Dave, and and even the buttons. You know, it's a great thought, but I wonder uh, how many people can identify where those buttons are if you have low vision. So mm. the audio aspect of it is incredible, but how about the placement? And placement is a huge thing. Like, Nisreen, you talked about um, being using crutches or using a wheelchair. Uh, sometimes I wonder, like, for people who aren't at eye level with art, uh, can you actually experience it the way that everybody else who is, uh, you know, able-bodied can experience it? So there's, there are I'd say still a lot of barriers to um, enjoying art. And I find it really important 
to make art inclusive and accessible, like even online, right? If you're not able to go in person and physically visit some of these uh, extraordinary places, well, maybe there's some alternate access we can give people online mm. and uh, image descriptions and things like that. Take the art with you and uh, walk through of galleries, but do it with your headphones, you know, like lots oh, of different yeah. ways to make it. Yeah, there's there's so many wonderful ideas. It's more about the implementation. I know that some museums, for example, uh, the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg, tried to utilize beacons. So as you were going mm -hmm. through the tour, the headphone would would pick up a, rec a receiver from a beacon at, a, at an exhibit, and then that would feed it into your headphones, which I always thought was kind of a neat way to try and do that, too. It takes the onus off of me to find something. You're beaming content at me. I thought that was a really neat thing they tried to do. I do admit that it can sometimes be complex because needs are complex. That's why I yeah. definitely, not not that I like to ghettoize disability or ghettoize accessibility, but I do think special hours or special tours, giving sort of a more exclusive access is something that has its merits for sure when you're talking about more complex art. It's I don't, true. I don't know what you think about that, it, Ramya. Well, no, it's definitely true. I, I think that that kind of... Uh, sort of like having these exclusive opportunities makes the art feel more inclusive, ironically, because, you know, I go to a theater show and what everybody else can see, I'm not getting, but I can mm -hmm. still enjoy it as a, a lover of theater and plays. But then if I get a touch tour afterwards to feel the fabric or to understand the props that, are, uh, that were used, that makes me feel like I enjoyed the experience and, and was on that same level as everybody else, or at least close enough. Mm -hmm. I want to bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, certainly in your years working for ATW at AMI This Week in Edmonton and Toronto, I know when I was working for ATW, they were oftentimes sending us to museums about accessible exhibits. I'm curious about uh, some of the things that you've noticed over the years that you think would make a museum more welcoming for people. Yeah, well, you you had to go and uh, take both of my, my examples that I was going to talk about with the Museum of uh, uh, Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg, which is, uh, in my mind, the most accessible, the the best example of a museum starting from a foundational standpoint to create an inclusive environment for everyone. Um, I, I think, you know, they do things very well. But I, I also wanted to to dive into the idea of specialized tours, of the touch tours, and in in an extension of that, having assistance from the museum, whether it's just volunteers or staff who can help guide, interpret, offer more insight to whether it's art or history or other artifacts, because there is a, a level of, I guess, um, information that gets lost if you are, if you're deaf, if you're blind, if you, you have mobility issues in terms of understanding the environments, understanding the exhibits that you're in. If you have vision loss, you can, you can, have a audio description of, of a plaque or, or this or that, but you may miss out on some of the other key factors that may not always be described. So I think mm -hmm. offering up uh, like whether it's volunteers or, or, or guides who can go one-on-one -on -one and, and can also lend their knowledge because they're going to have other knowledge. It's not printed on a, you know, uh, a, a small, like four, a pair, a four line a plaque on, on a different object. They, they're going to have more insight, more details. And you get, exposed to more that way too and I, I think that's important especially too when it comes to art because art is so inherently um just subjective to the person you you can understand the the colors the schemes the shapes 
but what is the meaning behind it? And that's not something you're going to get from any sort of description. It's it's in talking to people and in knowing what the artist is thinking that you're really going to get more of that experience. So I, I think those are the ways you can really improve an experience, starting a, a solid foundation of accessibility of a uh, inclusive environment, and then adding those knowledge, adding those specialized tools is really how you bring it up to the next level, especially if a museum may not be as modern or accessible as some of the other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nazreen, I want to come to you for a concluding thought, because you've heard us all mention this idea of exclusive tours or behind-the-scenes touch tours, or maybe some of that value-added. What do you make of that as a way to make the museum experience more inclusive? I think 100% I would attend every... I would go into that museum all the time. Um, these wonderful ideas that I, I feel like they should have been um, included for a long time, even when we were young. Like we used to go to museums all the time when we were younger. We never had that. So these are amazing ideas. Yeah, there's definitely something there. Well, Nazreen, Alex, we thank you guys for your input on this one. Ramya, as usual, you can't go away just yet because you're also the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes our way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. What's coming up on the show today? Well, as always on Mondays, we're going to start off the week with some sports updates with Brock Richardson of the Neutral Zone. Uh, we're also bringing on Ardra Shepard, host of Tripping on Air, the podcast and video podcast. She's going to talk to us about um, what it's like to spill the tea to live with MS, and that's what she talks about on her podcast. And then we're talking about this situation that's been making the news of late. Dave, which is that a shop teacher in Ontario who identifies as trans has been um, getting a lot of media attention. There's, you know, controversies around her appearance and how she dresses for school and whether that should or shouldn't matter. So obviously this is a know your rights conversation with Danielle McLaughlin. You never stray away from the difficult stuff with Danielle. You guys go (laughs) right (laughs) for it. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Jim Crisco will be here. He'll recap the annual citizen walk that took place, citizen citizen walkabout in Lethbridge, Alberta. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's wrap up this Monday edition of the show by catching up with AMI content development specialist Jim Crisco in Western Canada, specifically Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. Jim, you're in Alberta, not too, too far from Lethbridge. So there was a recent march in Lethbridge that shed light on some of the challenges facing the disability community. So tell me about the Citizen Walkabout and the organization behind it. This is yeah. This was a really important march. It's it's um, it's been happening for a few years now. It's an annual march, uh, and there was actually a couple of organizations that are involved in it: the South Region Self Advocacy Network, and um, in partnership with the Southern Alberta Individualized Planning Association. So these groups get together and uh, they do a march um, uh, to City Hall, and um, it it really is important uh to draw attention to uh to some of the you know issues and concerns that these uh these folks have yeah there could be any myriad of concerns for people within the community about well 
take your pick, right? There's there's a wide ranging list of concerns. But what were some of the key messages that marchers and protesters were trying to send at this particular march? Uh, well, what they're trying to do, there, there's actually a couple of things there. It's to highlight, of course, the, you know, the issues, et cetera. Um, but they, they also wanted to uh, to look at, you know, some of the wins and some of the the uh, the positives that they've experienced in the while. But truthfully, to draw attention to uh, the effect of transportation, communication and finances on the disability community. And, and you know, is this specifically in southern Alberta? So, uh, you know, there's a there's sort of a dual factor. They they they're they've made some strides, uh, they've made some great strides and they they wanted to celebrate that, but they also wanted to let people know that there's still, you know, issues within transportation, there's issues in communication and of course in finances. And especially now with, um, you know, as we're going through inflation and such, um, it's it's hitting everybody harder. Yeah, you, you can't have a disability advocacy event without acknowledging the economic status of so many people with disabilities and a general lack of housing, as you say, transportation, a perpetual lacking point for people to get from point A to point Z in a dignified, efficient way. So certainly we can see why those, why those would be uh, big areas of concern. Jim, any sense of what the turnout was like? How many folks got involved in this, uh, in this march in Lethbridge? Uh, you know what? I uh, I'm really not sure. I think it was a, it was it's usually a pretty strong turnout, uh, and also the people there's there's several people from the community from the disability community that are uh, that come out every year and they're they're participants every year, and uh, from what I understand, uh, they were quite pleased with the turnout. Not only the turnout but also the response, uh, because typically the the people you know that that should listen are listening. Uh, to this response, and they turned it into you know an event with um, uh, with uh, a barbecue and with mm-hmm. uh, entertainment and that type of thing as well. Yeah, so it's it it was good. Yeah, it's still a celebration at the end of the day. I know I know they definitely have that with the disability pride marches that exist uh, across the country as well. Where yes, there's an element of protest, but it's also community gathering. You still want people to enjoy themselves while they're there, no matter how serious it may be. Jim, that's. Uh, finances and transportation. Well, let's pivot one province over to Saskatchewan, where a housing benefit is up for conversation. The provincial government announced a new benefit to support people with housing needs. So the funding is for people in, quote, vulnerable situations. So who does that include? Uh, there's They put it into a couple of different categories. Uh, and it's called, it is the Saskatchewan Housing Benefit, SHB. And the first category is... Um, the the uh, people who are seeking safety from interpersonal violence uh, and leaving interpersonal violence situations to help them find a new place to live independently and safely. So that's one. And then the other one is uh, to support um, services to uh, live independently, including those experiencing mental illness, addictions, or behavioral changes. But within that group would be persons with disabilities who may also be working or living independently. So there is uh, a really good potential to um, to perhaps uh, get some some additional aid in, in covering uh, rent and utilities. So those are the broad strokes of the program. Is there any, any notion of what the specifics are in regards to how much money an individual recipient may receive? Yes, they're they're basing uh, the amount of money on the, the size of your your home, basically. Uh, one bedroom is $225 per month, two bedrooms, $275 per month, and three or more bedrooms, $325 per month. So right now, that's how they have it uh, divided up. 
And is this in partnership at all with the federal government, or is this specifically a provincial program? No, this is this is the feds as well. Uh, there's a it, it's part of the national housing strategy, uh, and I think that um, it's 11.5 million, I believe, that's available this year to to put into it. But yes, it is a provincial federal uh, partnership, which. Um, we are seeing, you know, more and more of that in, in what I've been reading anyway, and uh, and it seems to be a really uh, effective and efficient use of money and and uh, uh, typically covering some really, really well needed things in the community. Jim, I know every now and then there is some tension between provinces, between premiers and the federal government. There's no doubt about that, but it's always nice when you see them getting along, although oftentimes that comes with blank checks attached. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're... <laughs> well put. Yeah, it's amazing the happiness that money can buy, the, the, the roses <laughs> and sunshine that money can buy when you're looking at uh, premiers and the prime minister maybe not butting heads as much as they think. Jim, just before we say goodbye to you today, I've got a music question for you. I went sure. to go see a concert last Thursday, this band Jimmy Eat World. I'm not going to get into details, but they have a very famous song called The Middle, which has been called one of the top five pop punk or emo songs of all time. So over the weekend, some friends and I were trying to figure out Okay, that's fine. We can accept where it lands on that list. But then how does that evaluate into sort of the grander picture of all-time music? Jim, is it possible to rank music across genre and eras? Is it even conceivable? Can it even, can it even be done? You know what? Uh, that's a great question, Dave. I would say no, because there, there are just so much changes era to era. Um, and genre to genre in music. Uh, and, and then how would you ever kick the Beatles out of first place with like five of their songs? Right. And like, <laughs> and like, how do you compare like Beethoven to Dr. Dre? Exactly. Exactly. And, and if you look at something like, uh, you know, sales, does that really tell the story? Uh, not, the, probably not. Yeah, right? th that one's tricky too, right? Plays and sales. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was, just, it was a thought that I had over the weekend as I was contemplating a very enjoyable concert and a very fun night and uh, a really good song that they definitely closed with because it's their biggest hit. So what do you do? You close with the big hit. You send the people out on a high note. That's, and that's what we do on Mondays when we talk to you, Jim. We send them out <laughs> on a high note. So thank you for this. Have a great week. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Dave. Have a great week. That's Jim Crisco, a content development specialist for AMI. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Megan Gilmore has an update on the National Disability Benefit. The show starts at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.